Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to this episode of the Insider Outsider Podcast. I've got a very diversified guest this week. Noah Prince, who's a senior consultant here with WMFDP, has a really cool background. For He's going to talk about that in a little bit. He specializes in working with Fortune 500 companies, tech startups, educational groups, nonprofits, individual clients. He's got 15-plus years as a leader in equity, inclusion, and leadership development. He has a BA in Black Feminist Studies and an M. ED in urban education, has worked in Philadelphia, has worked in Seattle in the school equity, and he's highly passionate about advocating for Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and for children. What a time. Thank you for joining, Noah, in this crazy time we're in. Good morning, Michael. Really honored to be on the show with you, stepping outside of our usual facilitator hats and connecting on this level through the radio waves this morning. What a time indeed. Yes, you know, we thought everything was activated in the world with COVID-19, with our mod killing in uh, Georgia, and, and now in the, a couple weeks ago with George Floyd, and his funeral services were just yesterday. There were the most protests worldwide yesterday that there has been in the last few weeks. Of course, there's been all kinds of things happening in Minneapolis and all over the place, some with looting, some with just straight up protesting and and Amy Cooper, that whole incident that happened in Central Park, where she activated the police based on her fear of a black man who was bird watching in the park and asked her to put her dog on a leash. And that, you know, that, that, there's a lot happening right now. How is that impacting you? It's a good question. On a personal level, it's, it's cutting me. Personally, I am married to a black American woman. I'm the father of a black daughter, stepfather, full time father of a black daughter. As a white man who's strived to be anti-racist in my personal and professional life for the past 15 or 20 years. It is a moment of pain and surrealness for me to be both protected from some forms of violence by my white skin and to hear on a deep level my daughter's consternation and fear of beginning to see police in a different way based on the way she perceives herself in the mirror. There are sleepless nights and tears going on in my life. And that's in addition to the work I've been doing for years, advocating for white people to stand up for racial equity. It's coming at me very real, very raw, full on right now. I'm also finding a bit of grace in this moment. I feel like we are temporarily suspending structural racism in America. It feels like there's a temporary emotional interruption in that. And I see allies of many different stripes and colors leaning in. And I'm trying to hold as much space for that as I can. I'm hoping for that. Wow, Noah, that's a that's a lot. It feels like it's like this heaviness, this rawness in your family. It's like 
coming at you really close, and you're seeing at the same time this sense of some layer of relief or hope because of the intensity of what's happening in the world around the protesting, I assume. The protesting, we're seeing CEOs, leadership levels on high levels of our business structure taking a knee, metaphorically, taking a moment to reflect for the first time in a very, I would say, vulnerable way around the voices of racial strife and anti-blackness that have been going on. We're seeing money being moved and reallocated in new ways in our society. I mean, we're just seeing so many breakthroughs. Just yesterday, the Marine Corps, U.S. Marine Corps, banned Confederate flags on bases all over the world as a symbolic step forward. I mean, we have not seen this type of energy in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And yesterday, the NFL commissioner apologizing for not realizing they uh, actually owning that they made a mistake and not allowing the peaceful protests, Colin Kaepernick and others. And there's a lot of things happening that I wouldn't have assumed it would happen in a long time. Really fast. Really fast. It, it strikes me some ways of the ways that Me Too and before that, some of the LGBTQ movement in the past 15 years socially. Like I was cynical, though. I was wondering if racial justice, especially for black and brown people and indigenous people would catch that kind of wind. And it feels like right now we might be in that moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm wondering if your daughter's in a leg time of she feels actually the more of the worry part coming that she hasn't felt before and doesn't quite see the relief that you see. And you're watching that happen. That must be interesting. It's interesting. It's ushering in a conversation. I'm used to black clients, friends, family members telling me on a very emotional level what it is to give their black children the talk for their own daily safety and survival within systemic racism and to be a white father holding emotional space for that is yeah there's a lot of tears and snot in my life right now i'm not sleeping on the flip side i had a surreal moment the other day i went to pick up some food in downtown renton we take out food on fridays in this uh, social quarantine era and i went to pick up some food my car died downtown and it died in front of a bar the bars had just opened up under the governor's order and there were a bunch of white men without masks drinking in front of the bar. And one of them said, don't worry. This is on Friday, by the way. We have called the police. My brother works at the station down the street. They're going to come over and jump you. Okay, so off the bat, solidarity, my white privilege is inviting all of this. I'm like, and I don't have a chance to respond because I want to bring food back to my black wife and daughter. You know, and so I'm like, okay. Then he comes back a minute later. Oh, my brother said there's a disturbance going on, so they're not going to be able to help. But my uncle runs the gun shop across the street. Come on, let's go over there and we're going to get a jump for you. So now my mind is spinning. So we go over there, all white people talking about AR-15s, kind of like what I hear you and others talk about. They're mad at the governor's orders for social distancing. There's all this kind of political vibe going on. And I go up and I explain the situation and the man instantly stops and says, no problem, buddy. I got you. Greatest smile, genuine smile comes out with the cable, still can't jump the car. At this point, there's a Black Lives Matter march starting to come down the street. So I've been shown love for the past 30 minutes by fellow white people, and my white privilege has given me safety and access and credibility. And now a Black Lives, and I haven't said anything about the moment and who I am. And now a Black Lives Matter march is literally coming down the street. And these white people have obviously not thought about their identity privilege in the ways that I have. So I get up. I have no idea what to say. And I say, folks, 
I'm a white guy. As you can see, I'm married to a black woman. I have a black daughter. We're in really sad, hard times. This march is coming down the street. My car is broke right here. I am going to walk and join these folks. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to come to my car. And I know I might piss some of you off and makes it. And I just left it raw. And then I joined the march. And then so those are the times we're living in. What was the look on their faces when you shared that? I didn't look at their faces. There was so much adrenaline. When I came back, one man muttered under his breath some curse words. Somebody gave me a hug, which probably wasn't safe during COVID times, but I accepted in the moment. And I told three guys that I was really sad about what was going on in our country. And when I left that establishment to meet my tow truck driver about 15 minutes later, I heard three white male brewers who made the beer in the back of their place talking about something is different in our country right now. So were they in the place I was? No. But were we able to hold space and interrupt for a second? Yeah. And that needs to go on every single day, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the interesting thing that you're talking about in that story is the tension that you live in between those different worlds where people just can assume you're another white guy who knows, you know, where you stand on stuff, but you're automatically a brother. You know, we're going to help you as much as possible. I love how you just showed up with the rawness and spoke to the tension in your body and what you saw and what you wanted and let the consequences land. And I imagine in your life, you've learned to just do that because you have to. And there's a lot of white folks out there that don't take a stand, that don't speak for what they believe in because they have the privilege not to. And that's some of the problems that I think we're breaking through now is getting people to actually speak up more. And it's complicated. You know, yesterday, Michael, we were asked by a colleague, what would it take for white people to consider physically putting their body in the way if they saw a black colleague or citizen or fellow countryman being harassed or detained in a way that was depriving their life? That was the, that was the, the seriousness of the question. I have lost friends, very close friends. And I've had very close friends physically hurt due to police violence. I have been in situations where I have stepped up physically in the sense that I put my body up and said, no, you're not going to hurt my friend that way. Or no, this is not appropriate and been part of a group that has interrupted. I've also been in situations, particularly back in the days when I lived in Philadelphia and was younger, where I have encountered police officers engaging my former students in very scary ways. One episode I particularly remember where, at least to the way I recall the situation, I saw an officer plant drugs on an eighth grade girl who was happened to be a student of mine. And we had walked down the subway station together after school. And when I said to the officer, I don't think that looks right, he lifted me up by my collar and said, basically, I will F you up. Do you have anything more to say? And my subway was coming. I was younger and I got on that train. I got physically scared. I don't know what happened to that girl to this day. That part of me is Amy. And so I say that with humility. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for that. You know, sharing that. Mm, Man, I'm feeling that now. And I'm imagining what happened to that girl that had drugs planted on her so she could be in trouble. And she had drugs put on her by the police. It's like a setup. And interestingly enough, when I was a teenager, I actually did use drugs and I sold drugs. And the treatment I got as an individual was one of either understanding or kind of a rugged individual that was going through a phase. That's the way I felt older authority figures and my loving parents saw me. You know, this is a rebellious stage that white American teens go through and this too shall pass. 
So even connecting that to my own life and there, but by the grace of God, go I. It's those things that make one stop for a second and take a breath. Yeah, and so th- what you're talking about, Noah, I think is the realization for many of us white people that there are two worlds out there, that we can commit crimes, we can do stuff, we can you know drive around, and we're going to we're going to not have the consequences that others have, that black folks have, that other brown folks have and things that, and we may assume it's all sameness and say, well, I got out of that, you know, what's the problem? And it's like, that's one of the biggest things I think for white folks and white men is like realizing the world is not the same for everybody. Yes, there's sameness, but if you only focus on trying to connect with people, understanding commonality, you miss the differences, which I think are spoken very clearly in the George Floyd and the reaction to Amy Cooper call and how it's a different game. It's a different world. And what else happened in your life that awakened this sense of advocacy for you and maybe particularly an affinity to the African-American community as well? Seems like that's a thread in your life. I thank you for that question. Definitely started with my parents, you know, good old 60s hippie stock parents, (laughs) a a mom that stood with Dr. King and marched for that generation of racial equity, a dad who morally didn't align with the war at that time and stepped away from calls to service. They joined the Peace Corps, left this country, left this culture, left this cultural box and framework for 10 years, lived first in Micronesia in the Southeast Pacific Islands, setting up gardens and teaching English in community schools, and then later moving actually to the Middle East, believe it or not, to Iraq, Afghanistan, and finally Iran, where I was born, an American Jew born in Iran in 1978. And by the way, my parents say that the to this day, the Iranian people are their favorite people they've ever met. So talking about sameness difference the way we take in media sometimes so those values were in me the first person to ever intervene in my own internalized unconscious bias or racism was my mom when at the age of seven i was a fan of tintin books for the listeners who might know what that is tintin was kind of a comic american detective blonde-haired kid who went all over the world with his cute little dog snowy on detective comic book adventures and they busted up criminal rings and they met all types of interesting characters And similar to Warner Brothers cartoons and other images from the 1940s and 50s, the caricatures of black, indigenous and people of color were very racist and very vile. And the language used to describe them was the same. So I remember learning a racist word about black people in a Tintin book and singing it to my sister, making a song about it, not even knowing what it was, per se, at least on a conscious level. And at seven, my mom's saying, we don't use that language. We don't dehumanize people. And I remember that word. That's the first time I ever heard dehumanize. And I have no idea what that meant at seven. We sat down, started reading about Dr. King. And we started talking about the own family friends that my parents bring around and some of their histories. And so that, to me, was the beginning of not being shamed when the poison that I've ingested surfaces in ways that are not productive, but instead of being responsible for that. Since then, it's been a kind of, as we say, WMFDP, a journey from unconscious to conscious. I've had the opportunities for many years to be in black spaces, first as an ignorant white man, then as a white man claiming and striving to be an ally, and then as a white man challenged and loved by black spaces to really do the work of going into white spaces and working with white men and myself to do this work. So, you know, it's been that type of evolutionary process 
Philadelphia and Seattle, Washington have both been very instrumental in that. The past seven years working with you, working with other white men has been incredibly spiritual for me. When I first started this journey as an advocate, even as a community organizer, I was somewhat judgmental and arrogant of other white men for a long time, feeling that they weren't willing to step up, feeling that they weren't willing to take the risks on to advance humanity and understand our place within that. And it took people like you slowing down, connecting me to my breath. It took people asking me about some of my feelings and getting in touch with my experience to understand that the work is meeting other white men, humanizing each other in that moment in a way that we might not have due to our fathers or due to the ways we were socialized in this world. And then using that next moment to challenge ourselves to look at what we don't know and how we can do better. Yeah, it feels like there's this move that, you know, when I first did my dissertation, studied white men doing diversity work, a lot of them were angry at white men, similar to what you're talking about. And it's like this spiritual disconnect from a part of ourselves. It's like, how do we come to white men from a place of love, which Another Jewish colleague of ours talked about the difference between Christian love and Jewish love. Love, in the Jewish sense, meaning challenge and support, not just unconditional acceptance, but we can challenge each other from a place of love, which is that kind of relationship that we need amongst our own group, amongst white men. But we can't really do that until we also are willing to embrace and love the white male part of ourselves, which includes the clueless blind-spotted desire to prove our innocence, that we're good guys, not necessarily see and own any degree of racism, whether it's passive or even some for some active racism, and own that or own it in our family or our threads or what do some of our parents or our ancestors say as racist. I remember my mom saying, don't bring home that man again to my sister when she brought a black boy home in eighth grade. That was in Iowa. So what, what group... You know, what's our background? So you you went through that process of coming to be willing to love some white maleness in yourself and others? Absolutely. And for me, it was, I'm one of those people that try, like you, Michael, that tries to see the sameness difference. So I really do believe through all people, there's a, a current of humanity. And my words here, a divine energy presence in each of us. And I believe that on the surface level, the way that we have constructed this society, our skin matters, and that white skin is elevated and systemically advantaged within that. One of the things that I'm aware of, Noah, is that a lot of our clients request you. A lot of our clients love you. The way you connect, you know, you you connect on a broader generation and a scale than some of us older folks, older white guys, being a younger white guy. But also, I think you're just very relational-oriented. You're very connected connecting and that I'm I'm just curious about that. Is that always who you've been? Do you feel like that's been spiked in some path of yours or thank you for that question as well. A memory that always sticks out in my mind about formulating the man that I was to become was walking with my dad's father, Holocaust survivor. My dad is first generation American. Grandparents escaped the Holocaust, Jewish grandparents. Walking with my Jewish grandfather, a Japanese tea garden in Seattle, an outdoor arboretum. A goldfish jumps out of the water and lands on a lily pad and gets stranded. And I stopped and I, I was a little distance from me, but I picked up a small handful of pebbles and I was throwing them. And by the third throw, I tapped the lily pad with the pebble and it knocked the goldfish back in the water. And my grandfather kissed me on the forehead and said, you're a beautiful boy. My parents have raised me in that fashion since the moment I came around. Gentleness is something that I love. 
And I don't always feel as an American white male, that's the pathway towards connection with others, particularly other men outside of my relationship with perhaps my dad and my grandpa that I'm encouraged to have. So that gentleness has been a profound part of how I choose to operate with other life. I really believe in the sanctity and sacredness of life. And I want to be gentle and friendly and playful. I feel my best when I'm like that. And that feels so far out of the body experience I'm asked to have as a white male in this society. I actually feel I've been able to hold on to and protect that spirit all the way up into probably my late teens, early 20s, when I began to enter the workforce and figure out how do I make a living and also hold on to that true innate sense of who I am. That's been harder task for me. Some of the ways I've chosen to medicate to and with drugs and alcohol in the past have prevented me from accessing stronger and clearer signals and feelings of who I am. I would say that I've had a really good reminder from that from white women allies in my life this year who are also striving to be anti-racist about some of my disconnect between my mindfulness, my emotional intelligence, and the path that I espouse of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And one thing about me and why I try to surround myself with people like you, Michael, and other courageous white men who are willing to be vulnerable is I want to be part of a community that gives feedback to each other because we see the full humanity of each other. We honor that. And because we want to always strive to elevate each other to sustain and go even higher together. So receiving that type of feedback and creating a gentle persona that is still confident is something that I strive to do on a spiritual and psychological level, if you will. And as far as the generational question, up until joining this company, the only white male that I've seen that has shown me what it's like to pass the baton on to the next generation and to do it even better than I've done it is my dad to me. Meaning I feel he has empowered me and say, you know, you are going further than I could take it and your child will take it further than you. And I feel like that power when it comes to generational privilege for white men is one of the things that really interrupts the ways that we can advance as insiders who strive to practice inclusion. This company, I see it as well. And I really want to be the type of white man myself who is proud of where he went with his life, but knows the generation behind him can take it even further. And at some point in my career, I need to be a legacy builder that gets behind them. Mm-hmm. Mm. And how, how do you see, I'm wondering about the differences in us and what you see around the generational front as you look at sort of the workspace today and the, the DNI space and the issues that come up around generational differences. How is that alive for you? It's a good question. So as a generation Xer, I definitely feel a bit of a meaning I'd be born between 1965 and 1980. I was born in 78. So just barely a generation Xer. I feel definitely a unique bridge between the millennials entering the workforce right now and certainly your generation, Michael. And I also feel that in this moment of racial injustice, in this moment of COVID and everything else going on, generation Xers are actually the ones that are kind of the insiders and stepping into leadership positions. So for a generation of folks that were cynical and sarcastic and <laughs> supposed to be slackers, it's very, very ironic. <laughs> I think <laughs> yeah, for me, for me, it's like, Oh, I'm looking in the room. I'm the oldest one. I'm starting to see that more and more, or we have this statement, please move to the other side of the room. If you're over 55, 
Well, after 25 years of doing that, I have to start walking on that question. I haven't had to walk on that before. <laughs> <laughs> and my daughter reminds me every day that I'm corny, so I'm not. I'm not. I'm not cool with it anymore. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> the thing with that I know is too generationally is I think status and rank. The ways that I see at times, and 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 I recognize I might have a judgment around this, so I need to continue in re, in my relationship to baby boomer males like yourself. Continue to investigate my own bias but i feel like status and rank has kept a generation above me of white men um both absolutely committed to progressive values and diversity and making ourselves a more perfect union but also not sure of how to really support and challenge other white men their peers a to name our feelings especially if our fathers didn't grow up with us naming their feelings and then b to lean into other white men in a way that instead of keeping the peace there seems to actually disrupt the social accord. So I think that's part of the challenge right there. Yeah. Well, you're speaking to some gender shifts too, I think based on, I, I, yeah, I've found more freedom to be in my heart, more, more acceptance. Maybe it's the, you know, being involved facilitating leadership programs and diversity programs where we get to do that more than your typical guy might, you know, but Maybe you're finding there's more more permission in your generation to do that too across the board. It's gradually changing. I am finding that, and it's feeling good. And I'm seeing people come up behind me even a lot further, a lot further. I mean, you listed all those names earlier, including George Floyd, and I'm aware that it's black, indigenous, people of color, millennials that are reminding us right now that Breonna Taylor is also in there. Black women need to be included. Black trans lives matter. All of these things that are coming even to my leadership sensibilities in a to the forefront in a way that need to be there. Yeah, and you're 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 talking about being. Are you willing to be in the middle in that session yesterday where my twin sister was in that session and I talked to her about hey when she came out as a lesbian, my mother initially rejected her. Actually, she didn't initially. She just rejected that and said you can't bring her to the family reunion, and she did anyway. And I'm like, I feel like. I don't even remember the timeline and whether how much I was there, but I'm sad I wasn't in my mom's face more in the middle of that protecting you. And Marty was feeling that, you know, that's now part of what, how she sees it looking back is she does feel me there. And it's like, so all of us have opportunities to where do we stand in the middle between somebody who's an outsider and using our role as insiders and how can we intervene with other insiders from that place of love and support to create that space. And that's like the opportunity for all of us to, and I think people, though there's so many different dimensions of insiderness and outsiderness. It's not just, you know, about gender or race. It's sometimes it's introverts and extroverts and age and different functional groups and organizations where some people are more insider function, whether you're marketing or engineering and less others. And it's like, can I tune into those insider outsider dynamics? Can I check into that? Because I only usually see the ways that I'm an outsider. I don't see the ways I'm an insider and that others might be an outsider in that same dimension. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the behavior piece is key. I really appreciate you being one of the teachers in my life. I feel like I'm somebody that when it comes to this work is focused on a structural and policy level, meaning I really want to create deep systemic structural change that gives our babies a different world that allows us to imagine something even bigger and brighter than this moment. And coming back to meeting white men where they are 
or white people where we are taking our first steps into this journey. You are such a masterful teacher to me, Michael, in this work of connecting it back to that breath and step of our behavior. How does this immediately show up for me now? What are my feelings around the way this is immediately showing up for me now? How am I able to receive feedback from others around the way this is immediately showing up for me now? And how am I able to use myself as an instrument of change and either allow others or myself to intervene in my behaviors now, giving an example to my peers of how they might do the same in their next moment? Because this jerk, I feel you on that. So, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's say there's a lot of white folks listening who have been activated by all these protests and wondering, what do I do? How do I help? And what messages do we want to give them? What, what suggestions of do's and maybe some don'ts that can be irritating for black folks or other folks? Absolutely. One thing I want to say is one of the things I'm really seeing right now, key levels, is the debate around do you ask people of color, particularly black, indigenous people of color in your life, if you're a white person, what you should do? Or do you do something, right? And I'm seeing even amongst white activists and like this intense emotional debate about this. For me, one of the harder issues is that I really do believe we have to call out behaviors and we have to call out mindsets that are not promoting equity and inclusion in a way we have not in the past. I also have seen in my own life and my own progression how shaming individuals in the public eye, unless it's like atrocious racism or atro like an overt act, it doesn't advance understanding. It doesn't advance insiders leaning in to examine themselves. So in this moment, I think we have to both hold each other to a challenge support of doing better as white people in advancing racial justice. And we have to continue to hold space for ourselves to check in with each other. I don't expect to task people of color with being my mental therapist when my wife and daughter need to survive in this moment, right? That's not equity. And if I say that and truly believe that, then I also can't shame the white guy who accidentally says something from his traumatized, unconscious self in this moment of time when he's thinking about it for the first time and then leave him there. I have to check in with him. I have to meet him where he is and then challenge him and myself in the next moment to do better. I'd rather talk to 10 people like that than one person who strongly agrees with me right now. That's the type of work I want to do. I'm thinking, so you mentioned the mindset. So if I have the mindset, I've got some illumination here. I've, I'm starting to see these, whether it's privileges, systemic advantages, and that other guys don't have a clue. And I've got to like pound it into them. That's not a helpful mindset because it's sort of like, I've got it and you don't. I've got it like, and so I like to approach and say, hey, here's what I noticed. Here's how it impacted me. You know, when you own your experience with somebody about how they impacted you, it's not an argument about their intent. They assume they have good intent. It's about how they just impacted me. And if I say that makes me uncomfortable, what you just said in our meeting, and I don't know what to do about it. I want to talk to you more about it, something like that. It's unarguable because I'm owning it as my experience. It's not a, if it's an arguable conversation, then I'm not owning something which is about my impact, which helps and makes it less defensive. It's like, yeah, it's like, and so I want to, in the way that I intervene with my white colleagues, I want to model the kind of world we want to be in. I don't want to like somehow attack them and then go back to assuming the world is love again. It's got to be through that same process that we want to have. And then I want to do it in a way where I know that it could be me in the next minute that is the one that just said something that is offending somebody and I'm in that learning moment. So I actually invite them to to give me feedback, you know, in, in the next moment where I need it to. 
we're on the same bench. What you're saying with my literal experience a couple of days ago, when as a company, we were coming up with our statement around George Floyd and around what's going on in the world at this moment. And as you recall, we had some unconsciousness and consciousness informed by different generational perspectives and also where we all were in this work and journey together. And it led us to, for the clients that don't know, literally have a session with ourselves that day, which was very, very important to me. And one of the things that came out of it was in that moment, there was another white man that we work with and are very close with who was feeling both shame and responsibility in his connection to that. And I remember at the end of the night, I was in a very raw place because I, I had just had a conversation, stayed up all night with my daughter in tears because my black daughter had just seen the George Floyd situation. And so I was in a very raw place. And I remember towards the end, you know, we moved, we did some heavy moving and some heavy lifting in that conversation. And about, you know, nine or 10 o'clock that night before I was trying to get ready to go to bed, I called that individual and left a message. He took steps that day. I took steps that day. The company took steps that day. I wanted the next morning to have a little bit of light, even in all the ambiguity that we're still shifting forward to. And we have to lean in like that with each other if we believe in this. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I appreciate your partnership there, Noah, in that moment. In that, in the, and that's in the last week. And we are constantly like, this is a lifelong journey. For all of us, that we're not, not some of us aren't done, even if we've been doing this for 20, 30 years or whatever. It's like, a, it's a, always a process of learning, always a process of partnership. Give yourself forgiveness if you don't get something right. The main thing is you pick up and go on. It's part of our privilege as white folks to say, oh, I don't have it enough. I'm just going to hang back. I'm just going to stay out of the ring. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to do anything. And yet, what are the ways of doing and being amongst white folks, Noah, that would help you sleep at night with your black daughter that if you saw them in the world? Here's some thoughts I'm thinking right now. One, for as far as allyship and standing up, yes, you know, whether it's on your social media platform, whether for some of you, like myself, you are going to some peaceful protests, whether you're writing letters, whether for the first time, you're facilitating online conversations with your friends, reading anti-racist books to your children. That's one level of cultural awareness. Whatever your political stripes are, I encourage you, I encourage you to get uh, engaged in the political system coming up to this November. On a personal level, when it comes to equity, we as white consumers with our dollars can do a lot right now in supporting Black-owned businesses and supporting companies. There are tons of lists in each community right now about Black-owned businesses in your immediate community that you can support, and that makes a huge difference. There are also ways that you can get involved by helping to donate to peaceful protest bailouts. So there's a wide range. What I urge people to do, whether it's stepping into conversation or facilitating conversation for the first time, whether it's getting politically active or whether it's moving dollars to shift mindsets, take a step, take a step now and start talking to others, start forming a network of other white people, even if it's one or two other people that are willing to do that with you. And this is just as important for whatever this means to you, either in your local community or in the virtual community, connect your cluster of community to a larger cluster that includes voices, people and communities of color that are offering their own points about what they want, what their autonomy is, and what they're asking for from allies. It is that balance that I think is important. What's that last step look like, for example? I have to say, I am largely connected after 30 
plus years of this to a lot of communities of color. And sometimes I take that for granted when I'm meeting other white people who may or may not have that based on geographic connection or whatever. At the very least, it starts by reading voices. It's a both end. It starts by talking to white people about our feelings, but also reading voices and hearing voices, whether through the arts or through social media of leaders of color, of communities of color, right? And to the degrees that you're able to get in conversation, whether it's through these so- virtual platforms or in your community, you have to get into communication. And when you do so, come from a, you know, come from a place of both curiosity, self-love, as you were saying, Michael, and a healthy degree of humility, as I heard CEO Randall Stevens once say on that AT&T conversation where he's engaging his AT&T staff to be more inclusive. That healthy dose of humility is not about shame. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a great one. You mentioned that if people Google uh, YouTube, you know, Randall Stevenson addresses racial tension. They'll see that he's speaking to his ERG groups about that a couple years ago. And I saw that he announced his retirement recently, but it's rare that you see a CEO, white male, putting that vulnerability, I'm learning, I'm still getting this, and I need to lean into this journey. The TED Talk I have out there is a tool for white guys to either watch themselves, or I just saw, I heard an example yesterday of a, a woman of color giving that to her boss, and he came back and said, wow, I, I get it now. My book, Four Days to Change, is another tool that can allow guys to be a fly on the wall of our four-day program that we facilitated a lot too. And, you know, you mentioned all kinds of other resources out there. There's a lot of things, but it's, you know, the typical white guy would say, what are the five things you want me to do differently to a woman of color, whoever? And it's like, that's, that's coming right out of white male culture, action, take the uncertainty out of it and everything. And we need to step outside that culture and, and relate in things that I would ask a question that would be more like, what's it like to be you? in this organization, you know, and connect first and not jump to doing it. It's about connecting and feeling and getting somebody's world. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for the time for this conversation today and helping to create a resource that can engage more folks to step up and be courageous leaders in this moment. Yeah, you too. Thank you for, I want to just thank you, Noah, for your partnership over the years. You know, you, I know you found us from Bill. You were in Bill's leadership program, American Leadership Forum program. And then you were like, I remember Bill saying, there's this guy in this program and he's really cool. And he's dead set on this addressing race and other issues. And I think he's going to be great. And it was fun. I remember the first time you and I did a corporate defense contractor program together, a caucus. And you're like, are these guys going to accept this young guy, this more blue collar guy, white? And you were like, they're like, wow, this guy's got a different perspective. You know, it's like you have experience being a white guy and you experience living in another parallel universe sort of like that that just intrigues the heck out of them and as i said a lot of clients love that and and request you in multiple client systems and you have the ability to connect in the corporate world in the education university world and certainly in the nonprofit world and you know you've done equity work in schools in seattle and then philadelphia and you know it's just a wonderful journey and I love the partnership I have with you. I love the being able to connect. I love how real you are with folks, and I feel blessed to have you in my life. I feel blessed as well, Michael. And from a younger man to an older man, I love the way, the exemplary way you have been a father to your daughters and brought that into our company space and shown us younger men how that's possible. I'm literally living into that with my daughter now. 
I thank you for the platform that you and Bill gave the world, which is how do you engage white men in the business world with this conversation? I have not been able to do that. And I am thankful that you had the fortitude to stick that long with it. And also the ways that you are now, in my opinion, being legacy builders for the next generation. So it's a mutual feeling and I'm deeply, deeply, deeply grateful for it. Thanks. No, I appreciate that. And I love seeing your daughter, Adrienne, on some of our calls and just want the world to grow so she can thrive. Any last thoughts? Anything you want to share as we close, Noah? Just keep the faith, people. Keep moving forward together. Keep moving forward and taking your solo courageous steps. A better world is possible, and we are the answers we've been waiting for. Mm, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.